you, Jonathan. Am I on? I don't think I'm on yet. There I am. Good to see God's people singing. And uh, before I came into the sanctuary this morning in that hallway, I could hear the sounds of the church fellowshipping together. You know, when it's been so long since you've done that, it's, uh, it's awfully good to hear that again, isn't it? And good to see Beverly Braley with us this morning. We've been praying for her for weeks and months now after her car accident and uh, dialysis issues. Good to see you come in this morning. That was a special uh, blessing to see you and Jim. I do want to make the church aware of the passing of Darlene Dover, longtime church member, her son Jeff Dover. Many of you know Jeff and uh, continue to be in contact with him. There are no arrangements at this current time. Uh, they're going to hold off uh, and maybe at a later date, but stay tuned on that. Just remember uh, Darlene's family. If you'll find the book of Philippians, I mentioned last week that uh, something the church needs now, not, not just our fellowship, Christians in general in America right now, we need some joy. There's so much negativity abounding and criticism and of course all of that even gets ramped up more in an election year and uh, Christians need some joy and contentment and so I mentioned last week that we would be doing a series don't know that we'll be going passage by passage but uh, we will be doing a series in the book of Philippians on possessing true joy and contentment. And we started that last week, and this morning I want us to look at the second message. It'll be from verses 9 to 11, a very short passage. And we're going to talk this morning about intercessory praying for those whom you love. Intercessory praying for those whom you love. And so if you would find Philippians chapter 1 and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Philippians 1 verse 9, Paul says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, I think of that invitation given over and over again in the book of Revelation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. God, open our ears. Lord, help us to hear with ears and eyes of faith as well. Lord, encourage us when it comes to prayer that prayer is not an empty exercise. In prayer, we can touch the hem of the garment of the Lord Jesus and go into your very presence, Lord. May we be encouraged to avail of ourselves of that privilege more and more in these days, especially these days of trouble that we're in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
I'm sure many of you have read a little bit about Augustine of Hippo, one of the most profound figures in all of church history, especially the church in the West, since about the 4th century. About the 4th century A.D., he's been one of the key theologians of the church. Now, you might be tempted to think Augustine always lived such a great life of faith and was a wonderful example, but nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, as a young man, he was very carnal. He was very uh, fleshly. And he was proud of it. He was an immoral man. And he lived for the pleasures of this world. And his mother, Monica, continued to cry over him tears of, of prayers. On one occasion, she went to her local bishop and she said, Would you meet with my son and talk to him, disciple him, and mentor him? And surprisingly, the bishop refused. He said he's too young yet. There'll be a day, but he's too young. Well, she went home, continued to pray, continued to pray, continued to pray, and weep over the condition of her son. She went back to the bishop again, and again he refused, and he said, Ma'am, with a mother like you praying for him, I am confident of this, that God will touch your son and get a hold of him, and one of these days, he will live a life of profound influence for the sake of the gospel. And indeed, God did hear Monica's prayers for her son. The power and influence of prayer, that's what I want to talk to you about today. You know, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that the multitudes were amazed at Jesus' teaching. For he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes and the teachers of the law. As we think about the Lord Jesus, the thing that impressed the crowds was his teaching. But as we think about the disciples, the small band of disciples of the Lord Jesus, the thing that evidently impressed them the most was his prayer life. It's interesting how the disciples never said, Lord, teach us how to preach. Maybe congregations today wish that would have been their petition. But they didn't ask, Lord, teach us how to preach, but what was their request? They said, Lord, teach us how to what? How to pray. There's something about prayer. Prayer is that vehicle that ushers us into the very presence of God and is our, is our connection to the very throne of God. And you know what, folks? If we would pray more, I think we would experience more joy and more contentment in our lives. You know, James 5 promises us that the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. So strongly did the early church believe in the power of prayer that in Acts chapter 6, the apostles said that it was their supreme duty to the church to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. 
They were willing to let others do other things so that the main thing that they were called to do would not be neglected nor compromised. That's how strongly they believed in prayer. In Philippians chapter 1, we are invited into the very prayer closet of the Apostle Paul. Paul's passion for the growth of the Philippian congregation was was not only seen in his writing to them, but also through his prayers. And what we learn in this passage today is that we can actually help people grow and flourish in the Lord as we intercede for them in prayer. Now true, we can help people grow and flourish in the Lord by discipling them and having Bible studies with them, and I hope we do so. But we can also help people grow and flourish in the Lord by simply praying for them. In fact, there are some people that you can impact who may never study the Bible with you, but they can't keep you from praying for them. As we think about this passage, the first thing I want you to notice with me today is the apostles' practice. Before we get into the actual contents of the prayer, let's think about the apostles' practice. What was Paul's practice for those whom he loved? His practice was to always pray for them. Folks, it wasn't an odd thing. It wasn't an occasional thing. It was a constant thing. It was his foremost practice. Let me show you what I mean. Every congregation that he wrote to, you can see how right off one of the very first things he does for that congregation is he assures them of his prayers. Just listen to what he says to the Colossians in Colossians 1 verse 9. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you. He's talking about how they came to faith in the Lord, and a church had started there. He said, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of life. If you've ever struggled with how to pray for your loved ones, turn to some of these prayers of the Apostle Paul and incorporate them into your own prayer life. Again, you can find them scattered all through his letters. It was his constant practice to intercede for the churches to whom he wrote. Again, I want to remind you, James 5 says, The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Folks, we need to understand something. Prayer not only changes things, prayer changes people. Amen? Do you realize that you can have an impact on people's lives through prayer? You can have an impact on this church through prayer. It is not an empty task to have an intercessory prayer list of people in need in the family of God here and other needs. 
maybe missionary needs, our young people as they start school. So many things that we can be interceding for right now. It is not an empty exercise to have a prayer list that you go through daily, item by item, in your personal devotion time. Do not grow weary of that. But one thing you do need to do, you need to be patient. Because as we intercede, God doesn't work on man's timetable, but on his timetable. Sometimes Paul prayed for those that he didn't really even know that well. But if you go back to the previous passage that we covered last week, you can understand what motivated Paul all the more to pray for the Philippians. I talked last week about their partnership together with him in the gospel. They were steadfast supporters of his missionary work, even when some of the other congregations had forgotten all about him. In verse 7, He says, I have you in my heart. Other translations, because of other manuscript differences, say you you hold me in your heart. Either way, these folks were dear to the Apostle Paul. And so he's not just flattering them with kind words. They mean a great deal to him. They loved him and supported him even when others had forgotten. I mentioned last week a little bit about the occasion of this letter. I want you to remember that because, again, it it speaks of this relationship they had together, this partnership that they had together. They had learned that Paul had landed in prison under house arrest. And so they gathered up a financial gift. They gave it to one of their own church members, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, and they sent him off to Rome. Rome is the traditional place of of Paul's imprisonment here. Not all agree with that, but that's the traditional site. They send Epaphroditus off to Rome to look for Paul in jail and to give him this financial gift. I also want you to remember that back then you didn't just run down to the airport and buy a plane ticket and fly halfway around the world in a single day. You would have to join up with a land caravan and travel for maybe months and months to get to your destination or go go down to a port city and board a ship. And again, it might be weeks or months before you would reach your destination. And so it was no small feat for Epaphroditus to take this gift to go all the way to Rome and find Paul. But Epaphroditus has made that trip. He's found Paul. He's given Paul this gift. He was apparently planning to stay with Paul for a while, but he took ill so much so that word got back to the church at Philippi of just how sick Epaphroditus was. And so now they're not just worried about the Apostle Paul, they're worried about Epaphroditus. Is he even going to live or not? And so Paul thinks it wise once he gets well to send him back to the church at Philippi So they will be encouraged by seeing Epaphroditus again, and he gives Epaphroditus this letter to the Philippians to take back with him. 
My point is to simply show you something about the tight relationship that they had together. Paul and the Philippians. They loved Paul. And they loved Paul in action. They had him in their heart. And you know, 1 John 3.16 talks about love in action like that, doesn't it? It's not just words. But we're to love in deeds. That's how Christians are to love people. In practical deeds. That's how we're to love one another. And that's how they loved the Apostle Paul. And so it was out of this mutual partnership and admiration and love that he prays for them. And he assures them it was his constant practice. He persevered in it. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18 about a poor widow lady who all she had going for her against her adversary was her persistence. And she continued to go up against this judge and ask him to intercede for her to hear her case and to give her a verdict, and he wouldn't, but she persisted and persisted and persisted until finally the judge heard her case. And Jesus holds this lady up as a model of how we're to pray. But the punchline at the end of that parable, if I may say it that way, the punchline, Jesus said, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find such faith? The point is, to pray like this widow prayed persistently without giving up takes faith. Without faith, you and I aren't going to pray like Jesus commended. And we're not going to pray like Paul did for the Philippians and they did for him. It takes faith. Believing that God hears, believing that God answers in His time, in His way. It takes faith. If you were to gauge your faith by your prayer life, what would your prayer life say about your faith? You see, folks, your prayer life is a window into your soul, whether you realize it or not. Again, the apostles practiced to consistently intercede for those whom he loved. And I can't think of a more powerful way that you and I can minister to our loved ones and our fellow church members than through adopting Paul's practice. Second thing I want you to see, the apostles' prayer itself. It is a prayer for Christ-like love. Look at what he says in verse 9. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You know, in the world today, we have songs about love, we have poems about love, and we have books about love. But right here, what do we see? We see a prayer about love. Anyone who knows anything about the Bible knows right off the importance of love. The Bible says that God is love. It's one of the essential attributes of God. We speak of God's holiness, 
We speak of his sovereignty, his wisdom, his power. But the Bible also speaks about his love. God is love. The Bible says he loved the world, fallen humanity so much that he gave his only begotten son. The scripture goes on to say that those who are born of God, uh, the, the sign that one is born of God is that he loves the brethren. And a sign that you do not know God is that you do not love the brethren. Just read 1 John sometime. Love of the brethren, a sign that you're born of God. Lack of love of the brethren, a sign that you're not born of God. So love is critical. It is critical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why we share the gospel. That lost people can learn of the love of God for them. It's why we support missionaries. It's why we do benevolent type, humanitarian type work to help the less fortunate. Because we love. We're trying to share God's love. Love is critical to the gospel. It's critical to Christianity. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked about the greatest commandments. He said the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said all of the law and the prophets hinge on those two commandments. Loving God, the vertical. Loving one another, the horizontal. Jesus says that's what's most important. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, And now abideth faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul is clearly praying for the Philippians to grow in a type of love that can only come from God. You see, the world has its own version of love, doesn't it? And usually the world's version of love, the person's focus is on what? Themselves. What have you done for me lately? But God's love is different. Paul knew that the Philippians possessed this love. It is a love that the Holy Spirit puts into the heart of believers. He talks here about the extent of this love, the extent of Christ-like love. Notice what he says, that your love may abound more and more. Notice he doesn't want their love to simply be present, but he wants it to abound to overflow. Maybe the greatest need in the church today is for a love of Christ that overflows, and we need a love for people that overflows, a love for God and a love for people that overflows. The world doesn't need to see a stingy love where we measure it out in small doses. The world needs to see Christians loving God, loving one another like a river overflowing its banks. That's the image here. What would happen if the world saw something like that? And what kind of joy And contentment would people see in a fellowship if a fellowship of Christians together loved like that. You know, folks, most of the time when somebody leaves a church, it's not because of doctrine, although there are indeed doctrinal reasons to leave a church. 
But most of the time, you talk to the person and it has to do with some type of deficit of love that they have experienced or perceived. There's so much in relationships that hinders this type of love that Paul is talking about. Because we all have our own little quirks, don't we? You have any of those? (laughs) Everybody has little quirks that sometimes makes it difficult to love in this abounding way Paul's talking about. Then there's all the pressures of the world. But remember, Jesus said that love would be a witness. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Folks, love is a decision, it's a commitment, it involves actions, and it it grows deeper as time goes on. It's not just an emotion or a feeling. You know, so oftentimes, what do you hear in earthly relationships, like a marriage, for example? People will say, oh, you know what, I, when, I, when I met so-and-so, I was just so infatuated with her. I just, I just fell head over heels in love. And then when things get rocky along the way, they'll, they'll come to you and say, I don't know what happened, I just fell out of love. Just fell out of love. Folks, you don't fall into love. You don't fall out of love. You grow into it. You grow out of it. How do you grow into love? By doing the right actions. Love is demonstrated through actions. When a couple says, we're falling out of love, what they need to go back, what they need to go back and do is do what they did at first. When they, when they grew into love, go back and do that again. Paul prays that their love will grow more and more, that it will deepen in all of the actions that that grow this type of love, that they will be committed to that kind of action in their fellowship. And it's not something that's a stale thing in your life. Every day you're taking action either to grow deeper in love with God and with others or you're taking action to cool off your love for God and for others. If you don't love God the way you did a few years ago, then guess who's responsible for that? Whether it's for yourself or for others, in your prayers, pray that they will have a love for God and others that will grow and overflow more and more and more. And that they will do the things that grow the type of love he's talking about. Well... Concerning this too, I want you to see the expression of Christ-like love. Notice what he says about this. It is to be grounded in truth and discernment. In other words, it's not just some unintelligent emotion. Now I know when a young man grows into love with a girl, he might do some pretty unintelligent things. We probably have some testimonies about some of those things today. But as love grows, the type of love that Paul is talking about here, 
he, he points out that it is based in truth, in knowledge. The more we learn about God as we study our Bibles, the more we know about Him, it should be the more we love Him. The more we grow in our knowledge of what He's done for His people, His amazing grace and mercy, and the more we learn about God's greatness and His majesty and His power, the more we know about what the Bible says about the truth of God and, and who He is and what He's done, it ought to mean that the more we, we love Him more. That's why Paul says... He's praying that their love would overflow in knowledge. And then he moves on to talk about something else. Discernment. Discern that their, their love would grow not only in knowledge, but in discernment. Folks, we don't love everything. Some things, if we love them, they will destroy us. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. The world's passing away. And if you love the world and the things of the, of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Certain things you love could destroy you. And so Paul is praying that their love would, would Overflow and abound in knowledge and in discernment. Be more discerning with your love. If somebody tries to con you into doing something that the Bible warns you about and they say, if you love me, you will, that's not love. Paul prays for the Philippians to have a love that is based on truth, that is discerning, and a love, notice what he says next, that will approve or determine things that are excellent. Approve or determine is from a word that means to examine, to prove. In classical Greek, it was used of determining if a metal was pure. And it was used of testing coins to make sure they were not counterfeit. In Luke 12, 56, Jesus used it in reference to the weather. And the times. He told the multitudes, you hypocrites, you know how to analyze the, uh, the appearance of the earth and sky, but you're not able to prove the present time. Paul wants the Philippians to grow, to abound in a love that is based on the truth of God's word, that is discerning, and that is able to approve of and embrace only the things that are worthy of their attention, things that are excellent. Think about your own life. What are you trading a day of your life for? Are those things worthy of your attention? Have you approved them? Are they worthy of your love? Do you attempt to determine what is best so that in the long run when you stand before Christ, you will be blameless?
Then notice the outcome of Christian of, of Christ-like love. The outcome. What's the outcome of this kind of godly love? Love that's based on truth. Love that is discerning. Love that tests and approves things to make sure they're worthy. Paul says that you will be pure. That you will be pure. Some translations use the word sincere. The English word sincere is based on the, the Latin word sinacera, without wax. You see, in, in ancient times in pottery, some of the people became so skilled in pottery and they would, they would make these beautiful items of pottery, take them down to the marketplace, sell them, and the finer pieces, you could make a good living off of that pottery. And, and as they molded it, made it, and then would bake it, sometimes that fine pottery would be delicate and it would develop cracks. The unscrupulous dealers would fill in those cracks with wax before they painted them and they'd take them to the marketplace. And so those in the marketplace would learn that with pottery, you had, you had to take it and hold it up to the sunlight and turn it in certain ways to make sure you didn't see cracks filled in with wax. And if it didn't have cracks in it, if it wasn't filled in with, with, with wax, it would, it would be stamped sinacera, without wax. And that was a piece you could get a premium price for. Well, Paul says, that's how I'm praying that your faith will be as you abound in love and grow in knowledge and discernment and test and prove things that are excellent, that your life in God's sight would be pure sinicera without wax. That it would be the real thing. You know, no one enjoys being tested, but testing... Does, a, does show the genuineness of our faith. The other result in, in living out this type of love that Paul is praying for is, is that they would be blameless. The idea here in this word blameless is not only that they themselves would, would be without fault, but that they would not be a stumbling block to others. That was the sec secondary meaning of this word, blameless here. That they would so live their lives in such a way that as they lived out this love of God and were abounding more and more in it, that their lives would not be a stumbling block in any way to other believers. You know, Paul talked about that in Romans 14, didn't he? That whole discussion about meat sacrifice to idols, a mature Christian says, hey, I can go down to the pagan marketplace, buy a piece of meat that was used in a pagan temple, sacrificed to a pagan god, because I know there's nothing to that pagan idol. I can get a good price on that, on that meat at the meat market. Good stewardship. And I'll take that home, cook it up, invite a church member over. And maybe it's a church member who's weak in his faith. And you start, he talks, talks about, hey, man, that, that meat's good. I don't know how you grill that, how you fix it. Boy, that stuff's good. Where'd you get that? Oh, I got that down at so-and-so's meat market. That guy says, that pagan meat market? Yeah. You got this meat that I just ate down? Yeah. This meat was sacrificed to 
such and such God. Yeah. And you cause that brother to stumble who's not mature enough to eat it. Paul said, it's not just about my rights. I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause my brother to stumble. That's the word here, blameless. He's praying that their love for God would abound more and more and that one of the characteristics of it is that it would be a love that would be blameless, not causing others to stumble. He adds in here a reference to time. How long are we to live in love and grow in love and abound in love in this regard? How long are we to do it? What does he say? Until Christ comes back. What he's talking about here that he's praying for them, the type of love that they will have with all of the outcomes of it. He's praying that it's not something that'll just be temporary in their lives, but it's something that will go on and on in their lives until the day that we see Jesus Christ. Paul's still not done, though, talking about this kind of love that's overflowing. What's another outcome of it? This harvest of righteousness that it produces. True Christian love that's growing this way will produce a harvest of righteousness. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. How do we Bear the fruit of righteousness. John 15, Jesus said, by abiding in Him, in Him and us. That's the key. If, if all of this is going to be accomplished in our lives, we've got to every day have this proper connection with Jesus. He's the true vine. He's the one that's going to allow us to have this kind of growing love that, that produces all these outcomes and produces all this fruit. You can't do it on your own and I can't do it on my own. He's the source of it all. I think of a story of, of the friends of Lawrence of Arabia. After World War I, Lawrence of Arabia was in Paris with a number of his friends and, and they were mesmerized in Paris by all of the famous landmarks. They stayed at some of the finest hotels in Paris. And as much as the landmarks, something that fascinated them just as much, believe it or not, were the faucets on the bathtubs and the sinks. Remember where they were from, Arabia, desert climate. They couldn't believe you could go to these faucets and cut on water and cut it off, cut it off. There was this, it seemed like an endless supply of water. When they got ready to leave Paris, Lawrence of Arabia found out his friends, his colleagues were stealing the fixtures the faucets. He said, what are you doing? They said, as dry as it is back home, if we have these faucets, we'll have this endless supply of water. And he said, you don't understand. The faucet's just a valve. It's got to be connected to the right source, the source of water. 
Folks, if we're not connected to the true vine, we're not going to be able to produce this harvest of righteousness that Paul is talking about here. When all of this happens that he's praying for them, what's the outcome going to be? Look at the text. What's the outcome going to be? All the praise and the glory will go to God. Folks, shouldn't that be the ultimate outcome of everything we do? All the praise and the honor and glory goes to God. Let me just take you on a quick look back in closing. Just a quick summary. Because of the love Paul and the Philippians have for one another, he assures them that he's constantly praying for them. He's praying that they will have a love for God and others that is constantly growing and overflowing. He points out that this love he's praying for in them is more than a feeling. It is to be based in their knowledge of the truth. And if they have true love, they will be discerning when it comes to what matters in their lives. They will be pure and sincere without hypocrisy. They won't be a stumbling block to others. And their lives will bear fruit showing that they are connected to Jesus Christ. The result will be that the residents of Philippi will see what's happening in the lives of the members of this congregation. And they will see this transformation. These are their neighbors. They knew them. These are their neighbors. They see this transformation. And they hear their testimony. And what are they going to do? They're going to glorify God. Your God is real. He's the true and the living God. Their neighbors will say, when I see your life now, and I knew you before, and I see it now, and I see all this taking place that Paul's talking about in his prayer here, the only reason for it that I can come up with is your God has done an authentic work of transformation in your life. And even unbelievers, certainly believers will praise God, but even unbelievers will praise God. All the praise and the glory will go to God. What a way to pray for our loved ones. This morning, I want you to think about your own prayer life. First of all, do you pray? Because remember, it takes faith. Do you have faith that God is working in the world and He's working through the prayers of His people? Take Him at His word. Pray, pray constantly. And you're going to have to mark off time. And I'm going to have to mark off time and be disciplined about it and be constant in it. And sometimes that'll mean praying when you think you don't have time to or don't want to. That may be when you need to the most. I want to challenge you also to take this prayer right here in verses 9 through 11. And pray this prayer over your loved ones. You may want to type it out or write it down and 
Tape it to your bathroom mirror as you get ready in the morning and constantly read over this prayer in verses 9 through 11. And pray this prayer for your children, for your spouse, for your fellow church members. Father, thank you for your instructions in your word about prayer. Assuring us that prayer is not an empty exercise. Prayer moves the hands of God. God, may we be a people of prayer. We look at the world today, we look we look at the state of the, the church in the world. We, we look at mission effort. We just look all around us and we see reason after reason after reason that we should be praying. God, may it not just be words that we talk about in a sermon or a Sunday school lesson, but may it be the constant practice of our lives as we intercede for others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Jonathan.